I want everyone to think for a minute, maybe to something that has happened, or maybe for some of you it hasn't happened yet, but it very well could at any point. I want you to kind of think about where you would be, what you would feel, how you would react um, if you spent a majority of your time in life building into somebody, and, and maybe it's one of your children, uh, maybe uh, it's a family member, maybe it's just someone else in the church that you built a, a relationship with, you poured time, maybe even money and resources into this person, and you cared so much about them, and it came to the point where you just you, you prayed for them, you worked with them. Like I said, maybe this was someone as close as even a child. And then, I just, just think about this, after you spend all that time, all that energy, all that prayer, everything that you've poured into somebody, and they walk away from you. And they walk away from what you've taught them. You, they walk away from what you know is best, and especially as we're talking about in church today, walking away from Jesus. And maybe you've seen that happen. And uh, for those of you who have watched a child walk away from the faith, I, I can't imagine what you've gone through. I've not been there, but I can only imagine how hard it would be. There's been people in my life that I've poured my life into only to see them walk away. And if you've been in that position, you know the feeling of hurt and betrayal, especially if it's somebody extremely close to you, and you just think about a time that you've been betrayed. Somebody's turned their back on you in whatever aspect it might be, and the type of hurt and the type of pain that comes with that, there's, no, there's really not much to compare it to. We go through a lot of emotional pain in life, but to have someone who is intimately close with us decide to turn his or her back on us is one of the most painful and horrible feelings in this world. And as we think about that feeling, we, we think about how we would feel, how we would react in ourselves as we look at that. I also want you to think about what our actions usually would be to that person who turned their back on us because it's so easy for us if you're going to turn your back on me, then I'm going to turn my back on you. It's simple. That's what the human heart says. Because if you are going to betray me, then I'm going to hurt you as well. And that is not what we should do in the Holy Spirit and in, as we look at the Bible. But that is our natural inclination. And let's now remember, as we move into Mark, we're going to see this play out. Because what we're going to look at for the next two weeks is the betrayal of Jesus. And it's a lot bigger than a lot of us think. A lot of us immediately think the betrayal of Jesus, the betrayal of the servant king, well, it was Judas. Let's just focus on Judas because he was the one who Satan came into and used to betray Jesus to the authorities where he got arrested and eventually killed. And we'll get to all of that. And Judas is a big character, a big player here in the end of Jesus' life as far as betrayal goes. But it goes even deeper than that. And in the next two weeks, we're going to see that it's not just Judas that we're talking about, but really all the other disciples, not in as big of a way as Judas did in betrayal, but they also turned their back on Jesus in a time in which he would need them most. Even Peter, the one who's, uh, who steps up and seems to, to speak the most often, and he, and he seems to be the strongest of the disciples, even he will turn his back on Jesus by the time we get through this section of Scripture. And so this is where Jesus is going to find himself and we're going to see in the midst of that he doesn't give up on them, he doesn't turn his back on them but instead 
has a, an intimate meal with these men who are about to betray him in various different ways to show them his love and to show them the forgiveness that he offers even knowing what they would, that, what they would do. So that's where we find ourselves in Mark. If, you're, uh, if you want to follow along here in a minute, we'll be in Mark chapter uh, 14. Mark chapter 14, and uh, we're going to go through, we're not just looking at verses 1 through 5, I know that's what it says on the uh, outline, it's actually 1 through 25, and we'll read that in just a moment. Before we read that, let's go back and do some review as we get through this pretty quickly. Most of you know where we've been in the book of Mark, but for those of you who don't, or those of you who need a reminder, let's quickly go through what we've seen in the other 13 chapters so far of Mark. Uh, Throughout Mark, we see Jesus as the suffering servant king who is truly God and truly man. That's important. He is the servant king. Jesus not only taught this truth, but he demonstrated it through parables and miracles. This led to opposition from his enemies and pressure even from those who followed him all around him as they followed while others rejected him. Some would follow, some would reject. Jesus' ministry served all people at this time And during his ministry, he slowly reveals his identity to his followers. And he tells them then what his mission as the Messiah is. And that mission is to suffer and die. His followers then should expect the same and live a life of self-sacrifice. This has been the theme we've been looking at. Now we've seen Jesus coming into Jerusalem, showing everyone that he's the Messiah. The Jewish leadership would be condemned by their lack of faith as they tried to destroy Jesus' credibility at this time. Then in the midst of this, Jesus instructs his followers about who he is, that he is the Messiah, the danger of pride that's being seen in the leaders of Israel, and finally to watch for his return. That even though he's going to die and he's going to leave them, he will come back for them. And he, he teaches them on that and he wants them to live in a way that they are prepared and ready for whatever comes and that when Jesus returns, they'll be ready. And that's what we've seen so far through the book of Mark some key ideas there and he is a servant he is both God and man we've looked at that and that our life should be characterized by what characterized the life of Christ which is self-sacrifice we can whittle it down to those basic ideas and that's where we find ourselves now as we enter Mark chapter 14 we know now we are going to be on the on a fast pace to the death of Christ we're going to see uh, a few things happen. Now we are in the final stages before Jesus is going to be crucified on the cross. And we're going to see all the things that lead up to that that Mark uh, highlights. And as he highlights these things, there are still things that we can learn. Things that the disciples needed to learn. Things that Jesus wanted to teach. And so, as we get to Mark chapter 14, if you'd read along with me, we'll read through the first 25 verses. And it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at a table. A woman came in with an alabaster flask flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you and and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body 
beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they had heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they had sacrificed the Passover lamb, the disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and whatever, wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, and where am I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as Jesus had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he, he, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is the blood of my covenant, of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So this is the first part. As we look at this journey to the cross, we look at this betrayal that's going to happen, and let's just break it apart and see what we have happening, and then see what we can learn from it. First thing we see this morning is that the Jewish authorities sought to kill Jesus. The Jewish authorities were seeking to kill Jesus. They had seen enough, they had heard enough, they knew that he was going to take away their authority. The people were following him. Not only a few days before were the people out on the road uh, hailing him as king and putting palm branches before him. And the authorities know they need to deal with Jesus before it gets out of control. That's their mindset. They don't want to make Rome unhappy and they don't want to lose their own influence. And so we see right at the start of chapter 14, the chief priests and scribes are together and they're seeking how to arrest him. Now what we see here is what they needed. They needed a quiet strategy. You see, they understood one basic thing, and that is with Jesus, with the following that he has, they're not going to have a chance to just march in and arrest him. There'll be an uprising. The people that are around him will defend him. They'll fight because they see him as the Messiah, the political Messiah even. And so they're not going to be able to go in and just take him in the middle of the day. But what we're told here in 14 is that they were seeking to, how to arrest him by stealth and then to kill him. They wanted this to be as secretive as possible because they know they couldn't do it if it was in the sphere of the public eye. And that is what, the, what these leaders are looking for. They know the people would not support them. So they needed a quiet strategy because the people would not support them. That's what we find here in these first couple verses. They want to arrest him and they want to kill him, but not in a public way and not during the middle of the feast because they know that that won't work. And so they're kind of in a predicament. They're in a, they have a problem. They want to do something, but they have no way to get it done. They don't know how to find Jesus when there's a, when there's a secret time where they'll be able to do that. 
Skipping ahead, then we have this parenthetical about what happens in Bethany, and we'll go back to that in just a second. But if you want to just skip over that section and get to verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they had heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas gives them the plan that they need. This is painfully clear. Judas comes to them and says, I want to betray Jesus. Because he's looking for the power that he can gain from going to them and saying, look, I know what's going on. You're looking for a way to, to arrest Jesus. I can help you out. I can betray him. I can let you know where he's at. I can, I can show you exactly who he is and what you need to do. And so Judas comes to them. Now notice, this is interesting, in Mark, the way this is told is this is not that, the, that uh, they came to Judas, right? It's not that the, the authorities thought, okay, let's find one of his disciples, offer them money, and then maybe they'll betray Jesus. They're not that dumb. They know if they would have done that, if they went to the wrong disciple, that would get back to Jesus, it would get back to the people, it wouldn't work. Judas seeks out a way to betray Jesus. See, that doesn't make sense. Judas has been following Jesus with the rest of the disciples Everything seems, he doesn't seem any different than the rest of them. In just a minute, we're going to see that nobody has any idea who the betrayer is going to be. So it's not like, we get this picture of, you know, sometimes I even watch like Jesus films and things where like they make Judas look evil. Like it's just like all the time he's got like red eyes and it's like, okay, no, Judas, there was nothing about Judas that was like, oh, Judas, he's the betrayer. There's no question. If that was the case, if it was obvious it was Judas, what do you think Peter would have done if he found out? I mean, just think about that. I mean, Peter would have gone to Judas, Judas would have been beat up, he would have been probably, I mean, he would have been cast out. There would have been no chance for him if Jesus would have said, hey, Judas is about to betray me. So nobody knows, so obviously Judas has been following Jesus, he's looking the part, he's probably talking the part. Everything that looks like the rest of the disciples, that's how Judas looks. But really, the truth of the matter is, Judas is the opposite of a true disciple, well, where do we get that from? Think of the rest of Mark. The rest of the Mark says a true disciple is one who lives a life of self-sacrifice. Judas is not willing to do that. Judas actually is looking for how to promote himself. That's the opposite of a true disciple. So he may look the part, but he's not truly following Jesus. He wouldn't be able to do this. He wouldn't do this to Jesus if he was a true follower and he truly believed in Jesus. But then let's go back, because now we get to the parenthetical that I skipped over, because this gives us some insight as to why Judas makes this step at this point. Besides the fact that there has to be a betrayer because it's been foretold, there has to be a reason that leads Judas to finally go to the authorities and say, I want to betray Jesus. And that's where we find chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. When he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at a table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment and pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Then there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a beautiful thing for me. 
For you always have the poor with you, and whatever you want, you can do good to them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. All right, so let's talk about what happens here, and then let's see how that then transpires into bringing Judas to the point that it brings him. The first thing we see is that Jesus now is anointed in Bethany in verses 3 through 9. Jesus is anointed in Bethany. He's anointed as king. Remember, he is already king. He's actually anointed for burial is what we'll find out. A woman pours ointment on Jesus' head. This woman, by the way, if you compare this to John chapter 12, which I would encourage you to read on your own time, John chapter 12 tells this exact same story. John, I love the book of John, and I didn't realize this until not too long ago, but whereas the other Gospels tell Jesus' life in a more grand scheme, like from early all the way to the end, John mostly focuses on the last week of Jesus' life. And so we get some more detail out of that, and what we see in John chapter 12 is that this woman indeed is Mary, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus. Okay, so he's in Bethany with them, and we see Mary is the one that is uh, breaking this, this flask of very expensive oil, very expensive perfume, and she's pouring it over Jesus. It's a year's wages worth of what she's pouring on them, on him. And so we see her do this. Now, this is interesting. We've seen Mary and Martha before in a very similar situation where Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, if you remember the story, while Martha is busy serving and Martha gets mad at Mary and says, Mary, you need to help me serve. And Jesus says she is choosing the greater thing to worship me. That has happened. Uh, That has already happened. This is a separate time. And Mary now is again worshiping Jesus in a way that nobody else is. And again, we see that Mary gets questioned. Just like Martha questioned her and judged her, now we see the disciples doing the same thing. (coughs) The disciples question her actions. They judge her actions. Now you say, man, the disciples are pretty harsh here. You go back to John chapter 12, you find out something very interesting. And this plays into what we're going to see about Judas. The ringleader of the one who was trying to say that this was not a smart thing to do, that it should have been given to the poor, was Judas. Judas says, why? You know, that sounds great, right? It sounds, hey, why would you use that? You're pouring it over him. What's the point? We could have used that. A year's worth of wages could have gone a long way with helping the poor. Sounds great. But what John 12 also tells us is that the reason Judas did that is because he was stealing from the money bag. See, Judas didn't want the money for the poor. Judas wanted the money so that he could get a greater percent out of it. He was kind of like the tax collector that would take whatever he wanted out of it. Not that he didn't give some to the poor. There's, I mean, if he would have taken it all, it would have been quite suspicious. So, but we're told in John that this is what Judas was doing. So Judas was looking out for himself. But it sounds really good. And of course, he says it and the disciples agree. Like, yeah, Mary, what are you thinking? We could have helped so many people. We could have done so much good. Poor Mary, she keeps finding herself in these situations where she's worshiping Jesus and she's basically being told that she shouldn't. Jesus defends Mary and her faith though. Jesus defends Mary and her faith here in this passage and in all the other passages that tell this story, Jesus says basically the same thing. He says, look, the poor will always be with you. There's plenty of opportunity to help the poor. And I want to be clear here, Jesus is not saying that the poor don't matter. 
Like, let's forget about the poor, I'm more important. That is not Jesus, that, it's not that, that thought of, well, the, par- the poor don't matter. No, this is a simple truth that as she is doing this, this was her choice to make a great sacrifice for Jesus, to worship him, <clears throat> and not only worship him just because she thought he was a good guy, but he says she's anointing him for burial. She understands. Remember, he has been telling people for so long he's going to die, he's going to be buried, he's going to rise again. That's what's going to happen. He's been telling his disciples, he's been preaching it, teaching it. Time and time again, they still don't get it, right? They don't understand that Jesus has to die, but Mary gets it. Mary gets it. She's anointing him for burial. She knows it's coming, and she wants to use the opportunity she has while he's left to worship him, realizing that the worship of Christ is the most important thing at that point. And yet the disciples try to make it look like that she's doing something wrong and Jesus says, no, she's doing what is right. And he even says, look, every time the gospel is shared, it's gonna, her name will go out there and it's in all the gospels. So we see here that Jesus, what he says about her comes true and he defends her faith. I just want to say a few things here before we move on to Judas, as I said we would, but as we take this, this narrative that we read here, Well, how does that apply to us? Well, I think there's a lot of things that it could definitely apply for us. And the question I think we all should ask is, what good things do we put before the worship of Christ? You see, I think we also, also, just like the disciples, like to make excuses at times for why we're not worshiping Christ the way we should. And I can't tell you where that is in your life. I know with me there's times where I have done things in my life and said, you know what, I know for instance, that spending time with God this morning is the most important thing I can do before I start my day. But you know what? I've got, I've got other things that I need to get ready for, so I'll push that to the side. And what have I just done? I've taken what is good, but not what is best. Maybe you've done the same thing in an area in your life. And I'm not pointing out anybody specific, but I know one thing that I've heard a lot, and I've even been part of, before I was a pastor, and so I understand the mindset, is, is this. You know, I didn't come to church, or I don't come to church as much as I should, but it's because I want to spend time with my family, and I think that's more important. Or the other one I've heard so many times is, well, I know I miss church, but because I'm at this place, I can witness for Jesus. Like, those are good things. I'm not saying they're not. Being with family, witnessing for Jesus, of course, super, super important but the Bible says that you need to be with the people of God, worshiping God and giving Him glory. Mary was doing what was best. The other ones wanted to do something that was good, except for Judas, we understand that, but his heart was off. But what good things in our life do we put before worship of Christ? He has to come first, even over the good things of life, even over serving, even over all of that thing. Worship to Christ must come first. And notice here another piece of this is that she was sacrificial in her worship. A year's salary. She used to pour on the Savior before he would die. That was her choice to do and she worshipped God with what she had. So then we see that. So then how does this play into Judas? Well, let's go back real quick. Remember, so Judas is the one. He's about to betray Jesus. He comes to them and he wants to betray them. And he does it right after this whole conversation happens. Judas realizes something very quickly, that what he thought he was going to get out of following Jesus wasn't going to happen. 
He didn't get what he signed up for. Things aren't going his way. The money that he thought he could bring in, the political power that he could have by being one of Jesus' disciples who would be the political Messiah, all of those things that he could have as a follower of Jesus or at least being seen as a follower of Jesus, all of those things, when it come, push comes to shove now, he sees the side of Jesus that he doesn't want to see and that is that this is not about him being able to make money. This is not about him having power. So instead, he decides to do the next best thing, which is to go to the Jewish authorities because he knows they can give him the power that he wants. He knows they can give him the money that he wants. And so he comes to them. And we're told that he sought an opportunity to betray him. You know, so many times again, we see Judas and we think, man, he was just caught up in the... In the in the passion of the moment, and he just went up and kissed Jesus. Now, this was premeditated for a long time. He was looking for a way to betray Jesus. So then we find ourselves that in this section, now Jesus then shares a Passover meal with the disciples in verses 10 through 25. Jesus shares a Passover meal with the disciples. And we have this passage, we already read it, but basically Jesus says to the disciples, go ahead and prepare a place for us You know, the disciples ask, where are we going to go? Where are we going to eat the Passover? They're looking for a place they can do it as a small group. If they do it out in public, there's going to be crowds. There's going to be opportunity for Jesus to be killed. They know that the, the authorities aren't happy with them. And so they're looking for a place to worship God through the Passover meal together in a way that would be not public. And so the the disciples ask, where can we prepare for this meal? And Jesus tells them exactly what to do. Look for a man carrying a pot, a jar of water, which by the way, normally this is a woman's job. So obviously that's something special that they would look for. And then he says, go tell the master of the house that the, the teacher is coming. The teacher wants to have Passover with his disciples and he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us, is what Jesus says. So, Jesus obviously had already had a conversation with someone in Jerusalem that most commentators believe this is actually Mark's family. Uh, Mark, uh, who's writing the book from Peter's perspective, John Mark, his his family's house. There's, There's a chance of that. We don't know that for sure. But whoever this is has already had things prepared. It's all ready. It's all furnished. They're obviously a follower of Jesus that knows what to expect. And so Jesus wanted to make sure that he prepared for the meal. He was intentional about preparing the meal. He wanted to make sure that the time that he had with his disciples was, was personal and intimate. He wanted this to be in a place and a time where he could truly connect with his disciples wasn't just going to be a haphazard thrown together Passover meal. This was an important time of worship and an important time of teaching to his disciples and he made it sure that it was important and it was all prepared for. As they then come to the meal, Jesus then predicts his betrayal. He predicts his betrayal. So they go into the city, they found it, they set it up and when it was evening he came with the twelve. They're in the upper room, they're reclining at the table, they're eating All this has been set up and Jesus uses this opportunity to say, look, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread in the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. 
this intimate time, this time with his disciples, Jesus starts by saying, look, one of you is going to betray me. This is flabbergasting to, to 11 of the 12. 11 of the 12 cannot understand what Jesus would say this. Who would betray their master? Who would betray, betray their savior? The one they've been following. The one they've given up all to follow. Who would betray? And they don't know. As I said earlier, they, they start even asking, is it I? Like they start getting scared. Like it wouldn't, it's not me, is it? Like I, I don't think I would do that, but uh, is it I? And Jesus isn't giving them an answer. But what Jesus does say is one of you that is intimately close with me. That's the whole point of dipping the... Uh, Bread in the bowl, you only do that with your very closest friends. Like, Jesus is saying, look, one of you who claims to be one of my very best friends, we have an intimate relationship with one another in the way that we, our friendship is that deep. That we are so deep, that we are such in fellowship, that we care for each other so much. Out of you, one of you is going to take that and betray me. As I said at the beginning, just imagine the feeling. Jesus knows this ahead of time. It's not like he was caught off guard when Judas did this. Jesus knows ahead of time. And yet what he's about to do is just incredible. Even knowing this, we'll see what he does. But one thing I do want to say about this is he says this, uh, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread with me. Then the Son of Man goes, it is written of him. So Jesus says, look, I'm going to have to be betrayed because I'm going to have to be die. I'm going to have to die. I've told you that. This is what's been foretold. And Jesus says, God's going to do that, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. But whoever is going to betray me, just because it's in the plan for me to be betrayed and just because it's in the plan for me to die, doesn't mean that the person who betrays me gets away with it because, oh, he was just doing the will of God. That's what Jesus is saying. And there's, there's this is one point in which Jesus shows two things. He shows that he is sovereign. God is sovereign over the affairs of what happens. This whole thing, God knows what's happening. He's got his hand upon it. And yet there is still human responsibility. We can never blame God for our failings. And that's what Jesus is saying very clearly to Judas, to the one who would betray him. He says, look, woe to you. It would be better if you had never been born. The type of punishment and the type of agony that you're going to experience because you're about to betray me, this is your choice. This is not God. God did not make you do this. You are doing it on your own and there's responsibility to that. And then Jesus institutes a new covenant. After he says this to Judas, after he talks about the betrayer, Jesus then takes the opportunity to take Passover meal, to, to institute a new covenant with his disciples. Verse 22, and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he, broke a, he took a cup and when he had given thanks to it, it give, had given it to them, they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. Jesus again predicts his death. He's about to die and he uses this symbol of the bread and the wine and the new covenant that he's about to give to his people. Now something interesting came out this week as I was studying and in all my years of study I've never come across this but it makes a whole lot of sense and maybe some of you have heard it maybe some of you haven't but as Jesus does this he talks about his body and then he talks about his blood and I've always thought this is kind of redundant like whenever we come to communion I think it's pretty redundant like if his body's broken of course he's going to bleed like what? I don't, why, what's the deal with, why did he have to do both? Why wouldn't he just done the cup? 
you know, his blood. That, that shows that he's going to die and it shows that he'll forgive sin. So why did we have to do the, the bread and the wine? Like, I'm, and I always thought, okay, well, whatever reason, maybe he just wants to make it that much more clear. Came across something this week and I think this is true. I, and, and this is, uh, I don't have <clears throat> uh, all the uh, theological framework to back everything up. I don't have a 10-page you know, paper on this one. But the body, as Jesus says, this is my body which is broken for you. This is his life as a man. Think about it. He has a body. God has a body. You can't have a body unless you're a man. Remember, the whole book of Mark has been that he's the suffering servant king who is both God and man at the same time. And I think this is phenomenal to think about this as Jesus says, take, this is my body. I've become a man, and it's about to be broken in other passages as we look at this. I've become a man. This body that I've taken on as a human is going to be broken. And remember that I came to be a man so that I could break, so that I could be killed for you. I came to do this. I, came, I became a human. <clears throat> Philippians 2 tells us all about the fact that he gave up what was his in heaven and he came down in the form of a servant, in the form of a human. And he did that in his body. And he was going to give his body to be broken and to die. And then he moves on and talks about his blood. Now obviously this also has a connection to his human body. A human body bleeds. But also as we look at the rest of scripture, what is the point of blood? The point of blood is to offer remission or to offer forgiveness for sins. That's why the Jews did it, because they wanted to, when they made their sacrifices, the blood would cover their sin. And now Jesus' blood is going to take care of sin forever for those who apply it to their lives. And so Jesus is saying, look, not only is my body that I took as a human going to be broken for you, but also the blood that I'm going to shed is a way of forgiveness. Who's the only one that can forgive sin? God himself. And so Jesus again is saying, look, through my death, my human body will be broken and the blood that I am able to shed is good for forgiveness because I am God. Now we know the end of the story as well and we will get there as we continue on through Mark. Jesus didn't stay dead after he predicts this. He also will rise again. And so God does not stay dead, but he's able to die as a, his perfect life is able to be used as a sacrifice to pay for your sin and for my sin so that we don't have to face the punishment of hell and separation from God forever. Now here's the cool thing about this. Jesus uses this passage. After talking about betrayal, Jesus could have said, one of you is going to betray me. Also, by the way, spoiler alert, in the, in, ahead in, in Mark, you're going to see all the, all the disciples... When uh, he comes to get arrested, they all run away. And uh, Peter denies him three times. We know that story. We'll look at that next week. Jesus knows all this is going to happen, and yet he takes the intentional time to sit down with his disciples and remind them of his death. But not only his death, but the new covenant that he has with them. That forgiveness is theirs because of his death. That they'll trust him for that. He didn't turn his back on them when they were going to turn in their back on him. Jesus doesn't turn his back on us just because we turn our back on him. Jesus offers forgiveness. He offers his love even when we do walk away, even when we do turn our, turn our backs. So Jesus brings forgiveness through his life and death. This is what he says. 
Next week, we'll look at how all this plays out and the rest of his, his betrayal and denial and all the things that happen. But for today, let's remember this. Let's ask these questions. Have you received the gift of Christ's death? Maybe you today know that you've turned your back on God. He created you for a relationship with you. He created each of us so he could have a deep, intimate relationship with us. In the physical way, he's our father in the sense that he has created all of us, whether saved or unsaved. Maybe you're today saying, you know, I'm living a life in which I'm walking away from God in every opportunity I get. I've betrayed him. I've turned away from my creator, the one who created me and gave me life and and has told to me that he loves me. I keep turning my back on him. Don't do it any longer because Jesus died for your forgiveness. He died for all of our forgiveness. He broke his body. He became a man for us so that he could die for us. He shed his blood for us to be forgiven of our sins. And as we're forgiven of our sins, any time that we've turned our back on him and said, I'm going to do things my way and not your way, Jesus says, I'm going to die for that. All you have to do is believe and repent. Turn away from your life and turn towards me. Give your life to me. That is his call to all of us. Even if you feel like Judas right now. There is hope, there is forgiveness if you come to Jesus. So have you received that gift that he gave on that time that he sat down at the Lord's Supper and said, this is my body, this is my blood. Have you received that for yourself? Have you asked him to change your life? Have you given your life to Jesus? And if you haven't, make today the day that you do that. The second question we need to ask, is Jesus worth the sacrifice that he asked for? Listen, Mary knew that Jesus was worth a year's salary by pouring all of that oil on Jesus to anoint him out of faith. Is Jesus worth the sacrifice he asked for? What is that in your life? What do you need to sacrifice? I don't know what it is. In order to worship Christ, and that's the point. Sometimes even good things have to be sacrificed to worship Christ because he is what is best. We can live a full life of doing good things and still miss out on what is best. And Jesus says as he commends Mary, remember what's important. Jesus is what's important. Worship him. And finally, are we loyal to Christ no matter what? I don't think any of us here think that we could ever be a Judas. And most of us probably wouldn't fully betray Jesus. But as I said, it's not just him, it's the other disciples too. That, and, but here's the common denominator that we see with Judas that can happen in our life. When things don't go our way, when things aren't the way we think they should be, when all of a sudden what we thought we got in salvation or what we thought we get by coming to church, all of a sudden that stuff doesn't happen, are we willing to say, well, okay, if this doesn't work, then Jesus doesn't work. It's a dangerous place to be. And Jesus says, no, come to me. Be loyal. Don't, don't betray Jesus. We all do, at times, sin. And we turn our back on him. And he offers forgiveness and all of those things. But let's not give up on him simply because we're not getting what we want. Once again, the life is about self-sacrifice. So that's what we see here in the beginning of Mark chapter 14. We see that the beginning of the spiral down towards his betrayal and his denial and his trials and his death That spiral has begun and we're going to continue to see that in the second part of Mark chapter 14 
and then we'll go on as we see the rest of his life play out as he dies for us, as he gives his life to forgive us. All right. With that, let's rise and we'll sing a final song together.